It is Monday, May 11th, uh, day after Mother's Day. It's LA Podcast. I am Scott Frazier here with Hayes Davenport and Alyssa Walker. How are you both doing today? Doing okay. I'm good. Yeah. I, yeah is, what are you supposed to say? Hayes is sporting a new hairdo that he wanted me to make a bigger deal out of. So I'm going to tell everybody listening that he went from the longest hair of his life to the shortest hair of his life. I have the classic great. pandemic haircut. I look like a tennis ball. Uh, <laughs> I've had to reckon with the actual shape of my head for the first time in a, in a way that I never really wanted to do. Um, I had uh, I had extremely long hair throughout my entire teenage years because I didn't want anybody to see how large my ears were. Hmm. They don't so, look that big. Because of his hair strategy. I mean, but your hair is shorter and they still don't look that big. So I think you, you were you were just really just a teen, angsty teen. Alyssa, what's your <laughs> what was your um first how was your first uh, pandemic Mother's Day of many? Oh, so this is going <laughs> on. Yeah. yeah. I engaged in some selfish behavior. I went to a a Mother's Day rave in Pasadena. <laughs> it was it was wild. It was it was mom's gone wild. That- <laughs> Mother's Day rave. Mother's Day where all the best Mother's pandemic. Night. Yeah, this is where all the best Pasadena, you know, parties are. Uh, pandemic par- Pasadena pandemic parties. This is where they all are. And it was more like, yeah, it was like after bedtime till, you know, breakfast. It was great. It was great. That article about the Pasadena cluster set off by, quote, selfish behavior and people gathering at some kind of party where there was no social distancing or any masks or whatever included a story I really liked where it mentioned that like someone showed up to the party and like it talked about how they might have coronavirus as a joke. And I just thought like, it's oh, always those people that actually have it. Of it's course, always, them. always, yes. always. And I just thought like, oh, that's exactly the kind of annoying bit I would do showing up to this party. Like, <laughs> oh, I might have coronavirus and then everyone gets infected. So I found that I could relate to that. Well, now I'm like, you know, Father's Day, looking for it already ahead to Father's Day. Mm. Like, how, what can we do special? So you might eat food in, you know, the dining room instead of the kitchen, oh. or you might, you know, go outside instead of watching TV. So I'm just trying to think of some, brainstorm some special events for, for June. Maybe things will be open by then. Maybe the dad places it, will be open. It, Seems increasingly likely that at least some things will be open by Father's Day, but we'll get into that later, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, we wanted to start out with a couple of L.A. stories. Scott, you've you've been busy. I Yeah. So I have been doing I, every every so often pre pandemic. Sarah and I would engage in like testing the waters of the the rental apartment market and seeing whether or not we could possibly afford to have a little bit more space for our ourselves and our our four pets. Typically the answer has been a resounding no and we haven't we haven't moved from our, our place in Silver Lake as a result. We did go out and see an apartment uh, a, a two bedroom apartment this past week. It's been kind of interesting looking on Craigslist because although it is for the worst of reasons. The prices for at least these types of two-bedroom apartments have been plummeting recently. It seems like in a lot of places they've dropped hundreds of dollars a month, which on the one hand gives you a, a sense of how inflated the, mm-hmm. the prices have, have sort of become since the end of the previous recession, but also for people like myself, it has been an, an indicator or an, an, a driver for us to go out and actually look at a place. So we went to, to Fairfax, which I've talked about on the show before when we did our, our game about what part of L.A. would you like the city to look more like? I think Fairfax was my answer. Oh, I didn't uh, remember that. Always, always one of my favorite parts yeah. of town. Yeah. So we went over there, did a, a like tour of this apartment, which was really cool. I think also you're not really allowed to do those in person tours right now, but people are still doing them. So really, they didn't do a virtual tour. I didn't even ask you of that part. Yeah, no, I I actually only learned that because Alyssa in our group text sent me uh, the curved guide to moving during the pandemic. I have I actually have several friends who either have done this or are considering doing it, and. People have been saying, like, you know, if 
if you have to, if you have the the wherewithal to to do so financially right now, it's a good time to do it. Movers are an essential service, so you can hire movers. Also, like because nobody is going into work, you can sort of schedule your move in, in a way that isn't life alteringly shitty the way that moving in LA <laughs> typically is. So we haven't we haven't actually heard back about whether or not we're getting this place yet, but but we're you know keeping our fingers crossed because did it was, they like leave the key for you and like let you go in, or were the people actually there? People like the were lit? there. I don't wow. want to put them on blast too much. Oh, I mean, but. no, if I'm it's fine, but like I'm shocked because I feel like that is something that a lot of people. We had a story that was really talking about how people were pr- particularly worried about. Other people even wanting to come to the in-person show yeah. because they'd be worried. Yeah, interesting. yeah. We were masked up. Everybody had their masks on. We socially distanced to the extent that that is possible. But yeah, it was it was interesting. It, it was it's very much a, a, a renters market right now, in, in in the way that it almost never is here. And like, if you apply for something, you're getting like responses from uh, prospective landlords like right away and they're like really they're really engaged and they're not kind of just like doing the thing where they're normally like yeah whatever we have like a a literal line of people waiting behind you to rent this place out if we see like you forgot to dot an i on your application form you're out so so it's been interesting I'll, i'll update if we we get that or don't next week Related to that, I, I've talked on the show in the past about a couple, a man and a woman who had uh, been homeless in Echo Park or on Echo Park Lake. And at some point, the woman became pregnant and had been staying in a hotel and about the process of trying to get them connected to a case management and, and housing and things like that. I mentioned on the show, she had the baby, this nice little girl, and had been staying in a couple of different hotels and motels that, that Lhasa and other housing providers had set them up with. But the process of finding an apartment began in earnest the last couple of weeks. And apparently, most of the service providers just use a database of like what apartments and like landlords they normally work with that have like signed up for a program to get third party checks from the service provider and are comfortable housing people who had been uh, formerly homeless. But what happened with this couple is the, the guy went out for a walk in the motel they were staying the other day and saw a sign like saying that apartment for rent called the number on the sign and explained the guy the whole situation asked if he uh, explained to the landlord asked if he takes third party checks and the landlord was like yeah sure can you move in like this weekend and so i think what scott is describing so it's a really exciting thing they have how they signed the papers on a lease and so as i think happened in the last financial crisis we are now seeing housing possibilities open up for people. The market is less healthy, and so that means it's easier for people to find a place to live. This is the beginning of people being able to seek out and find affordable housing more easily in Los Angeles, as as we now have two examples of in our LA stories. I think that is a that's a big deal. That's that's. You know, the, the reason it happened is horrible, but that would be a positive thing. Yep. I mean, the only bad thing is that Scott moves away from Silver Lake and we no longer have Hyperion hyperlocal content. I, I know. We'll never see each other again in person anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, doesn't we, matter should, where we, we are, should apply for a like a work from home subsidy that, that like, <laughs> as soon as that is offered. Get a, get those parking parking permits, get a cash back for those that we never use. Yeah. Alyssa, you ventured outside this week. I did. And I you took outside. advantage of the first, this phase two. Is that what we're calling this? Is that what we're calling it? I noticed like the logo had changed. It's like no longer safer at home. It's just like safer LA or something like mm-hmm. that. So it's like we're moving through the levels. And you guys, I just want to also just take a moment to reflect upon the fact that the show has been canceled. The Eric Garcetti show has been canceled. Yeah. After one short season, they are no longer going to do the nightly updates. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're bringing it back. I don't know if you they're hate, like changing the writing team. I mean, I don't. I just, you hate it when that happens. I'm so upset. You, you invested so much in this character, Alyssa, and 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 he's gone. So many loose ends too. Yeah, so we don't know. We don't know really how this whole thing is going to pan out. They'll be doing more updates, but only like as an ad needed basis. I guess this is maybe things as just won't needed? change for a really long time. Yeah, okay. I'm like I think it's needed. 
mission accomplished. But anyway, we moved to the next level, whatever that is. And this weekend, this past weekend, certain businesses were allowed to open in addition to restaurants doing takeout, curbside uh, delivery type thing. So there was like bookstores and music stores, flowers for Mother's Day, all these places were allowed to reopen. But I had this like moment where we went to get food just a couple of blocks away from our house, this place Crawford's that they had closed and then they opens ba- opened back up now. Cause I think what we'll see is a lot of restaurants are going to actually be start to open now, now that there's kind of like a light at the end of the tunnel and they mm-hmm. can start to see how to, you know, make sure everyone's staying safe and kind of plan for like the, the next phase. So we walked over there, you place your order, you get, you wait, they give you your chicken. We had this like great moment. We ran into neighbors. We saw people we knew. We were kind of waving. There were so many people out like walking around. And I think what that was really, what was really like troubling me about this like curbside pickup branding of this phase is that this, you're envisioning that every single person is going to be in a car, like waiting at the, at the curb for like someone to walk out their stuff. And they did that and you can do that. But I think what we're seeing is people just wanting to go to places right in their neighborhood and they might be walking. We, there were oh, yeah. three people on bikes, like picking up food there, which I'd, I don't think I've ever seen three people on bikes mm-hmm. at a restaurant at once. I don't know, like some restaurants maybe, but you don't notice how people get there on their modes. And I started like interviewing people as we were waiting for our food and just talking to everybody. And they were pointing out to me, the sidewalk wasn't wide enough. Mm-hmm. There's no shade at a lot of places we're waiting. You actually have to like to space yourself six feet away. You run into another business that's right next door to you in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. There weren't any bike racks for people to even just like set their bikes up somewhere. There were a lot of people trying to walk by. Everyone was kind of like jumping out of the way. There's a very adorable dog. There's no dog water. Bo- uh, maybe that's not safe, but there's no, you know, there's no water for dogs when it gets hot out. Maybe we shouldn't have dogs in their saliva. Like, I don't know, like eat like all over the place in the sidewalk. But I thought it was a really interesting way to think about if we want to talk about how we want to read allocate our space to make sure people are safe and especially the workers are safe. Mm-hmm. Let's do like little like parklet interventions in front of restaurants. And it, it could be, there could be a parking spot for someone to drive up and get like the handoff in their car, but we might need those as like waiting areas or like shade structures, you know, something where we start to rethink. And that could eventually be part of that outdoor dining component where we need to move some of the seats outside of a restaurant or a bar to for social distancing. And it just made me really think about how if, if we're trying to support local businesses in this time and we've kind of had this like, you know, when you're, you, we got so worried when places next to us were closing that we had to support them, go back to the places that are near you and try to get there in a way that doesn't increase the car traffic and, and gets you out to talk to your neighbors and, and see them. And everybody's outside, which is so funny. You wouldn't know that somebody's inside a restaurant if they're in there eating, but if they're waiting outside for their food, you get to see them, which is what happened to like right. a bunch of different people that we saw. So just a, a little vignette of a very interesting moment that I think we'll see more of and how the city can quickly respond to that. That sounds more orderly than some of the other business environments that uh, opened this past weekend. I was a little troubled by the fact that it seemed like flower shops were designated to reopen hours before they would get their biggest like crush of customers of the season and that seems to have actually happened. Emily Guerin from KPCC LAist went down to the flower district downtown to take photos and saw people not social distancing. Like she took video that looks like, I mean, it's a zoo. There were just like people all over the place. And yeah. it didn't look like anything that to me I would refer to as curbside pickup. I mean, maybe that was like an option, but people yeah, were. Yeah, I think you had to go into the mart. It's, yeah. I don't know how they would have done that. Yeah. Yeah. So, inter- I mean, like, like you said, customers make a choice to go make these purchases. Employees do not. Yes. And it doesn't seem like there was necessarily time provided to even allow businesses to set up the infrastructure to open safely. And I don't get the impression that labor, like workers in particular, like retail workers, as we've talked about, are not as well protected as some others in the city, had a chance to really weigh in on what would make them feel safe. I think they just probably got a call saying, come back to work. And if they said no, they'd probably lose their jobs. Lose their jobs. Yeah, I think that that's going to be a major concern going forward. We talked about this last week in some depth when we were just saying our political leaders are people like Gavin Newsom and Mayor Eric Garcetti losing control of the narrative of these closures. And in the week that followed, we have seen an 
incredible, in my opinion, acceleration in the timeline to start reopening things. Mm-hmm. And we know we know from basic reporting that a lot of this is coming from business groups, employers, sm- small be- business owners, people who are saying, I can't afford to remain closed any longer. What that isn't taking into account is exactly what you said, Hayes. Like there's not the the people who are working for for these businesses can't afford to catch this disease and potentially be sidelined for weeks or longer and lose income or lose their jobs. And, and I think that that is now something that is going to become a real possibility when we look at the phase two of the reopening and, and subsequent phases that we're being told by Governor Newsom are weeks away, not months away, then we really need to be looking at what does that mean for employees, people who are now going to be thrust into situations that we know are not safe. The, the flower market is a, a great example of that, where the protections, there apparently was not much forethought into what it would look like to actually be an employee in that situation. Just a, a thought about how can we recapture some of the lost revenue for these businesses on this particular weekend? Uh, let's compare the, the the fact that we're reopening now with the numbers and like the, the where the outbreak is actually at in in Los Angeles. We have right now one thousand five hundred and thirty four deaths in Los Angeles County. Eighteen today on uh, Sunday, but Sunday reporting is historically much lower, so that doesn't necessarily mean much. There is a decline overall in the number of deaths and hospitalizations when you look at like seven day trends. The curve is actually going down at this point, which is great. It is a lot less steep going down than it was going up. And so we have sort of like not plateaued, but we're still in the 40 to 55 deaths per day range, which I mean, even just a few weeks ago, we would have said is a pretty shockingly high number. And there's some evidence. Uh, there's a site called uh, Crosstown Xtown.la, which is a USC journalism project that put together some interesting visual visualizations on where the outbreaks are happening now. And while like early on, we were always hearing about cases in like Brentwood, Pacific Palisades, West Hollywood. Like this is where the the, the primary outbreaks were happening in Los Angeles. But the epicenters have moved in terms of the number of cases to places like Inglewood, Westmont, Hawthorne, Lenox, Koreatown, Harvard Heights, like that area, despite the fact that still, I think, less testing is happening in those neighborhoods per capita. That could be a consequence of what we are talking about. I mean, there's a, a huge number of factors that like at, at play there. Like overcrowding, we've talked about a lot, is, is one of the more people living per resident in each residence. But these are also where people that are still going to work live. People that are still often having to get to work on a bus are, are possibly driving a bus. And as we there's a lot of talk about this week, the dangers that metro operators are subjected to. And now is it official now that they that they are mandating wearing masks on on metro? I think it's coming. I, I, I don't think that they have made that change yet. I think that that is anticipated to become official after the, the May round of of board meetings yeah they did it for dash buses for ledot buses though yeah hopefully they'll change the policy isn't it policy now where like they they don't ask for money you board in the back and they don't ask for money but if someone tries to give the bus driver money the bus driver has to take it yeah metro's metro's exact policy according to according to their staff is that they are accepting fares that are offered to them. In practice, I would imagine if you tried to get on a bus and and approach a bus driver, you would most likely be told, no, don't pay. Get away away from me. me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just... (laughs) Probably, yes. Take your $1.75. Yes, get it away. Don't... I mean, Um, Dash, they said it was just free, though. I don't know why Metro won't just say it's free. I mean, at uh, any time. I, I mean, I, I wrote something about this for Investing in Places blog a little bit ago. Metro has, specifically Metro CEO Phil Washington, has repeatedly said that, in his opinion, doing free fares flies in the face of social distancing. And he says that people will go to extreme lengths to get something that is free and will just go on buses even if they don't need to because it's free, which I think is 
uh, a dubious claim, mm-hmm. especially given the fact that many transit agencies across the country have been fare free since mid March at this point. We don't see those agencies like not forget like record ridership. We don't even see them having near normal ridership everywhere. There's no explosion of joy riding on buses. <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked. Surprisingly not. And and yet Metro has been obstinately opposed to going fare free. I think. One of the major factors here versus elsewhere is that going fare free on the transit system in Los Angeles eliminates a major punitive tool mm. that the transportation mm. agency can take against particularly right. unhoused riders. Right, right. It, it, and so I think that part of it, which has not been acknowledged in any way, shape, or form, is that Metro wants the ability to remove unhoused riders from buses and can use the de facto existence of fare enforcement to do that. One thing I wanted to say, too, in, in, in particular, when you're talking, Hayes, about the the locus of this pandemic moving south of the 10, another thing that came up in, in a piece that I was writing, again, for Investing in Place about bus ridership was that Metro has said that in their analysis of line level data, some of the lines, some of the bus lines have not experienced anywhere near the kind of decline in bus ridership Mm -hmm. as others have. In particular, one of the ones that was referenced to us was Slauson, whereas bus ridership is down 65% across the board. It's only about half of what it normally would be on the Slauson corridor. And in order to allow people to actually maintain safe distancing, they've had to take the Slauson buses and start servicing that entire line with articulated, the, the longer articulated buses, just so that people can stay spaced out. But in a lot of these black and brown communities south of the 10, service workers are still having to go to work. They are not, they're not getting to stay home during this time period. So even though there are a lot of people who are not riding the bus, there are a lot of people who still are. And, and it's clustering in particular areas of town. There was a study, too, that they did in San Francisco in the mission where they tested as many people as they could in a certain area just to see right. who who was sick and who wasn't. It was a great idea or who had had it, you know, all these different things. Mm-hmm. And that was exactly the finding they had. It was because they, they had a really good kind of cross section of different income levels, different races, all this stuff. And it was exactly that. It was the essential workers had the highest number of cases who were taking transit to work, who had to go to work. So that's like a really that has to bear out in, in a place like here, too. Brentwood, meanwhile, in this Crosstown article I read, uh, has not has had one new case in the in this month after being I mean, we would look at the numbers every week and be like, wow, Brentwood is like really having a major outbreak. But it has been completely contained because they all left. Right. They all went to their second homes. (laughs) Colorado. Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk about testing. So our, our case numbers are up pretty steadily in the 800, sometimes like over a thousand uh, new cases per day. There has been a lot of pretty terrible reporting on this nationally, including from the paper of record, the New York Times. The Times has put out now multiple stories referring to how like nationwide case numbers are way up. Uh, and if you remove New York from the equation that like the like the U.S. like the case trajectory is still going up and up and up without any reference to increased testing whatsoever. And then there was an article yesterday about how L.A. specifically is uh, seeing in- increased case numbers without mentioning the fact that our testing has increased dramatically um, over the last week. We're now averaging in L.A. County like between like seven and twelve thousand new tests a day. When like before that, the numbers were like something like between like two and six thousand. So tests have gone way, 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 way up. Part of the reason for that, I think, is we have expanded in L.A. City who can get tested. We are the first city in the United States, the first big city that has said you can get tested even if you are healthy, if you have no symptoms, if you're not a frontline worker, if you haven't been in, in, in contact with someone who has had coronavirus, anyone who wants a test can get a test. And what I want to talk about is where these tests are coming from. Cause we hear like a lot like shortage shortages of tests and like different companies like working to like put this apparatus together. Uh, and so I want to talk about like how this process got to be what it is in, in Los Angeles. So the way these deals work in the context of an emergency period is a no bid contract. We've been reading a lot about this at the state level 
where the state has engaged in some pretty tragic deals with like the former attorney general general of Alabama for like six million masks or something. And they ended up getting like 40,000 and are now having to try and like claw money back from grifters like, well, yeah. like uh, pandemic profiteers, essentially. Who? And there's a separate there's a separate one that that we talked about recently where Governor Newsom had said that he was getting this huge billion dollar deal for PPE from a Chinese company, BYD, that's located here in L.A. County. And now we're getting like the, the unit cost on that is like three dollars per mask or something like that. So really, really wild deals that are happening like you're saying, at the state level. Yeah. So the reason that it happens this way is because the process has to be really expedited. You can't go through the same like bidding process and evaluating companies. And so you end up making these really bad deals. In the case of Los Angeles, when it came to testing, supplying L.A. County and L.A. City with tests, my understanding is that there were a few different companies in the mix for this. There was Quest Diagnostics, which is a massive biomed company, had already been doing a small amount of testing in one of their labs in the in, in the city. C-Gene, the Korean testing company that has had a lot of success there. I think we even saw an announcement a few weeks ago that we had bought some tests from them and were in the process of making a larger deal. But the company that was chosen is a company called Curative Inc. Uh, and a lot of this was written up in the LA Times by Maya Lau, who formerly on the Sheriff's Department beat is now uh, apparently focused on testing, which is a great sign for it being covered properly. And good and probably a relief for her as well. Right. <laughs> for now, this the kind of stuff seems to follow Maya. So like, yeah. So Curative Inc. A few months ago, it was a biomed company. They're based in San Francisco. And they until March were focused on preventing uh, sepsis. It was like a sepsis prevention company. And they they did a very quick pivot to testing for COVID. Their founder is a guy named Fred Turner. He is 25 years old. He is he's constantly referred to as like an Oxford dropout, which is a phrase that I hadn't even like hadn't heard before in the in the tech glamorization. Like so this is a like this is a tech company. They were based in Menlo Park and the city is paying about one hundred and thirty seven dollars per test back on April 28th had paid six million dollars total. That number has presumably gone up a lot since then. And what that also means is C-Gene was cheaper because we paid $1.25 million for 20,000 tests for C-Gene, which comes out to about half of the, of the $137 number. So why was Curative chosen? Part of it is they use an oral swab technology, like a cheek swab thing, Instead of the test that you have heard more about, the one that just like goes inside your brain, essentially, like right. uh, like goes all the way back up your nose into your membrane. You've see, definitely seen those cross section pictures that look so horrifying. They look like they are doing the mummification thing where they pull your brain out with a hook or something. That yes. picture should just be on every street, like on every trail. <laughs> Like, just put that picture up everywhere. But now we don't have that uh, disincentive because now it's like testing is fun. You get to just uh, <laughs> give you this little spit. test packet. And you're, spitting. Yeah, you like you're supposed to like hawk up a loogie yeah. sort of before you do it. But apparently that isn't there's a Washington Post uh, reporter who said no one told him to do that. So he just <laughs> just did it on his own. So that's that's part of the reason they just felt like it would be easier to get people to take the test. It's more scalable, I think, because it's essentially a, a, a short Q-tip instead of a really long one. Clayton Kazan, the medical director for the L.A. Fire Department, who has been the, the county fire department, has been put in charge of the testing process, essentially. And he said that curative part of the reason they, they, they chose curative instead of Quest and CGene is that they're local. They're not really local. They're they're based in San Francisco but that they're not competing with other regions like New York. And that, I think, is a questionable explanation because Curative just signed a deal to be the testing provider for the Air Force, which uh-huh. seems like national competition. And like they are very focused on, on taking this brand wide for a company that barely existed just a few months ago. And also, like not only is it competition, but it's competition with a, a, a federal consumer and... If you've been paying attention during the coronavirus crisis, you know that 
the feds are not shy about just like taking tests from Mm -hmm. other government agencies if they decide that they have a higher priority need. Exactly. Which is administering them on themselves before and after every task force meeting is what they said (laughs) this week, which is nuts. So for why curative got chosen, like another thing I I, I do want to look at is you know, with any of these government deals for biomed supplies, there's a huge amount of money to be made. And there is especially money to be made in this case with Curative because it is VC funded. This is a a, a pretty small company, was a pretty small company that had gotten investments from DCVC, a huge biomed investment company in the Bay, but also some local LA venture capitalists. Macon LA is one, Refactor is one. The opportunity for those organizations to get incredibly rich off of a company going from like essentially like zero to the like preeminent testing provider in the in the United States is massive compared to uh, like something like C-Gene, like the like the opportunities for local billionaire making are not present or a company like Quest. The Quest is already a huge company. It's not like you have equity in it that could like, you know, you could have stock in it. But it's nowhere near the equivalent of like get rich quick ability from taking a company like Curative and making it huge. Yeah. And I think just as a side note, one of the one of the dangers that I foresee is that uh, when you are in this kind of environment where all of the government pressure is on go faster, go faster, Mm -hmm. that same thing that we're seeing with developing a vaccine and the government is already signaling we will the take more shortcuts with this. There is a lot of incentive for a, a startup company like Curative to kind of disregard the consequences of cutting corners where quality is concerned. After the fact, they're going to be able to say, this was this was the product of the deal that we made with government agencies. Yep. The government is responsible for this oversight. It's not our fault if whatever we did didn't work out as planned. So right. potentially we, we we end up on the hook for uh, um, a bad quality product. I looked at a lot of the Twitter accounts for Fred Turner, young, a young founder, and the, a lot of the VCs uh, and the investors in this company. And all of them have been tweeting some variation like every day of like, hey, are you a scientist? Please come work for our company right now. We have <sighs> all these tests. If you're a lab technician, we really, really need you to come work for us like right this second because we are scaling up so, so, so quickly. Then the one other thing about testing I want to just like like a concern that I have is with the new standards of who can get tested. Who is so we saw like apparently there was like demand being suppressed because the number of tests we're doing has gone up a lot since we said healthy people that previously couldn't get tested now can. Who is going to get this test? Who is like driving to Dodger Stadium or whatever saying like, I want to find out if I have coronavirus like right this minute. To me, it is someone who wants a hall pass to go visit family maybe go to work. Some workplaces yeah. might be saying like, hey, everyone just go get tested to make sure you don't have coronavirus and then you can come in. Maybe just like there is a romantic partner in your life who is concerned about reuniting unless you prove the within a, a document that your saliva is perfect. But the problem with that is that this test, whether it's this test or the brain poking test or whatever, produces a lot of false negatives. For every nine true positives that it puts out it'll put out one false negative so like you actually are positive and contagious for coronavirus but but the test didn't pick it up in this article that Maya Lau wrote on April 28th and an epidemiologist an infection and infectious disease specialist says if you get a negative on this test do not believe it so it should not affect your behavior at all theoretically it's good for like mass testing should be really good for picking up cases, like finding new cases and being able to do like contact tracing and things like that. That's all good. I don't feel like it has come with the attendant education of saying to people, if you get this test and it turns out negative, do not go visit your mother Yeah. on Sunday. That is, I mean, that is what you're saying is exactly right. Like who is actually going to be uh, incentivized to take this test? It's somebody for whom a negative result would change their behavior. Mm-hmm. And to to be wrong 10 or 11% of the time 
is really not good. <laughs> that is like a very high. It's not. So I just want to make clear exactly like what like it's like it's compared to the number of positive cases. So it's not like ten percent of of tests they do in general. Like most of the tests are negative to begin with. Oh, okay, with. okay. So Got it's it. like for every nine true correct positives, it's one false missing. negative. It's missing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still high. And I, yeah. Still and high. also I would say that people want to rely on the antibody tests too for maybe mm -hmm. the same reason. And that's like very contingent on a lot of things opening. And those aren't reliable either. And they're, my mom is getting like, you know, little practice ones to, just so they can see if they can do it by mail. And she does one every week and mails it in and all these different things. So they don't even know, they don't even know how to do that yet. So it, it's, this is right. going to last a long time. And anybody who tries to talk about like widespread testing, it's not really, it's not, it's not as effective as social distancing, which is going to save us as long as we can and restructuring our society around, around that is going to save us, you know, save our, let people go back to work, let people do things safely, whatever. I mean, we have to change how we do things. Speaking of nobody being there to save us, Scott, you were going to talk about <laughs> what is, was announced with the state budget this week. Yeah. So this was kind of, there have been rumblings, of course, since the stay at home, safer at home orders went into place now more than a month ago, almost two months ago, uh, where where the governor was and his people associated with his administration were saying, be prepared for the May revision that happens every year in California to the state budget to look pretty dire. The governor puts out two proposals for a budget prior to the legislature taking it up, which happens in the summertime. And the May revise is in, still in the future as we're mm -hmm. recording this. It's supposed to come out this upcoming week, probably shortly after you listen to this episode. However, the governor has put a, now put a number to the, the size of the deficit that the state budget is going to need to find a way to fill, and it is $54 billion. Wow. Yeah, it's an, it's an enormous number. Governor Newsom, for his part, has said, we still don't know. He said he still thinks that it's kind of interesting to, to, to pinpoint a, a specific huge number and then say, mm -hmm. we still don't know yep. what it's actually going to be. But he does say that one cause for optimism is, is that we have the potential to maybe make up some of some of the gap that exists right now. But it is known to be in the tens of billions of dollars. Importantly, if it is anywhere near this $50 billion mark, that is about three times as large as the record savings that we have in the state's rainy day fund established by the previous governor. That was known to be something that like, even in the event of a moderate a recession, it could be wiped out. We are obviously looking at what would be considered a very severe recession, although the duration is hopefully, uh, the expectation is still that it will be shorter relative to the length of the Great Recession of, of 2008, but definitely more severe, more acute in the initial stages is, is what we're seeing right now. So what's it? It's, it's, it's about 17 billion in the in the rainy day. Fund? Yeah, so right? I think it's about 17, maybe just about $18 billion in, in that rainy day fund. And the interesting thing about that is that there are a lot of formulas for how general fund spending has to be done in California, because during the past 25 or last 25 years of the 20th century, the, the Reaganites annihilated any semblance of normal taxation policy within the state of California. At, at the end of uh, the 20th century in 1998, the state's voters had to pass something just to like keep schools functioning, mm -hmm. right? Because it was almost impossible to fund schools on the, the diminished taxing capacity that the state had. So now that I think has been in, in place for about 20 years now and, and school funding has taken up by, by a formula that's in place about 40% of gen general fund, but... Uh, general fund revenues. But when we're talking about that taking such a massive hit, now we're saying that maybe $12 billion is going to be taken out of the hands of children and teachers. That's something that is a number far higher than in the worst single year of the, the Great Recession. Ju Judy Lynn, writing for CalMatters, had a great article this past week about what this deficit would look like and pointed out the fact that 
point out the fact that this massive hit would mostly fall on or primarily fall on the backs of a school system that is already hurting. We might end up seeing increasing tuition at the at the public universities in the state. And this is coming very shortly after the previous recession already dramatically mm-hmm. changed the picture of who pays for what in California. Now, tuition is much higher than it was relative to the operating costs of our universities prior to the Great Recession. Schools have less funding per pupil than they did before. Um, and all of this stands to be exacerbated dramatically in the coming months. And this this budget for the year 2020 to 2021 looks like it will be very frightening for, for the service provision in our state. And again, we have this coming up in November, which we're now all able to vote by mail, which mm-hmm. is super exciting, the Schools and Communities Act. So we still will have this opportunity to fund our schools and communities. And again, I keep bringing this up, you know, how is that going to go over? Are people going to be so worried about commercial real estate property owners that they are going to mount this successful campaign to like stop that? Is there going to be so much people, so many people worried about the state of our schools and like public facilities after we've been through this, that it will pass? Is this a window to go all the way on Prop 13? Because it seems Mm -hmm. like that could bring back that money that has been is still going to be trapped in in certain people's large lots. <laughs> let, let me say, I, I was somebody who earlier in earlier in the development of the schools and com- communities first ballot measure last year, I was pretty critical about the decision to leave out small businesses from from this bill. I think it only affects businesses of a certain size, rather than being a complete split role where you would repeal the effects of Prop 13 property taxation on commercial interests, regardless of their size. I was saying at the time, I think that that exemption is is needless and it creates more confusion. And, and ideologically, I just don't agree with exempting the small businesses from it. Now, you know, in, in May of 2020, it seems like a remarkable stroke of luck. It eliminates a, an entire class of attacks that this proposition will face that would have been harder to overcome as we're recovering from coronavirus economically. I do think that those sorts of small business defenses will ring pretty true to people. So by directing it at larger businesses, I think that the schools and community uh, schools and communities first proposition is is in a pretty good place. I, I know that there's a lot of discussion about like, are Californians going to lose their appetite for taxation? Listen, I, I think that the, the reason why people in California support taxation is because they support the things that are going to be funded by it. And when you start talking about the the tax cuts that we're giving to corporations in a time where we're going to see our education system completely fall apart and Medi-Cal fail to, to be able to be funded. I don't think that people will look at that and say, I don't want to, I don't right. want taxes to change. Yeah. I think what they're yeah. going to say is our society, as we know, it can't continue without additional funding from somewhere. When you talk about going all the way on Prop 13, Alyssa, I agree with Scott that people will be sympathetic, rightfully so, to small businesses that are really struggling in this environment but that it is a good time to go after large corporations and their real estate equity in the same way I think it is a good time to go after rich homeowners. Uh, when yeah. we have Do the same kind of thing with a, a certain cutoff where you have to start paying paying back. I don't know, like, you know, we could start doing that right away. Absolutely. I was just reading about a Bel Air property owner that bought a, one of those like undeveloped lots up there for uh, $6 million in 2005 and just listed it for $60 million. Is it Elon Musk? Uh, it <laughs> Yes. Won't it be better? Everything is going to be so bad. But once he's left California, won't everything be so much better? So it's just it's going to be getting rid of all of his like personal possessions. Yeah, he's selling, off, he's selling that, off all like, of it. Money is a possession. <laughs> <laughs> we have in Southern California the largest amount of uh, tappable equity. This is in the L.A. metro area. So like L.A. and Orange counties. We've talked about this on the show before. But we have $760 billion of tappable equity. That is like equity. What does that, that mean, tappable? That the, the owners can don't. access yes. by like selling or refinancing or whatever. And this is the money that we is basically off limits in terms of taxation. Yep. That tappable equity, that $760 billion is almost double the entire state of New York's real estate equity. It is more than double the state of Texas's 
real yep. estate equity, just in L.A. and Orange counties. And we have set that wealth off limits in our taxation system. And the result of that is that we are uniquely vulnerable to recessions. We tax things like income, uh, like we get most of our money from like income, sales tax, the hotel tax, the transient occupancy tax, things like tourism that yep. die first in a recession is that's where we depend on our revenue and stuff that's like the, property that is more stable like yep. that we can't touch. Yeah. At the at the local level, it's all things like sales taxes, uh, special taxes like the transient occupancy taxes on hotel rooms at the state level. Mm-hmm. Just as bad. It's it's primarily things like capital gains on extremely wealthy yep. people. Obviously, those are good taxes to have, but they're not good taxes to to base the like the, it's not not a good bottom level of the taxation structure because by definition in a recession there aren't capital gains right like those those broadly get wiped out and then you end up with uh, the extreme volatility in our general fund that that Cal- California has had to deal with for for decades at this point and just dependence on the vagaries of the stock market which we are i mean like from a state budget perspective we're frankly very lucky that it hasn't cratered to the degree that you would expect given the level of unemployment and people being thrown off of their insurance and just general suffering in this country. Alyssa, talk about the craziest story that I read this week by far. When you think of who is involved, is it really? I mean, like even though you think like maybe (laughs) they could cool it just this once. Well, to be fair, this did happen kind of in the early days of the pandemic. So we didn't really know how to. So our our old friend, Eric Hoffman, who we've talked about on the show before, right? I'm sure we've talked about. I don't know if we've mentioned his name specifically, but we have talked about Californians for Balanced Energy Solutions, which is his group. So he is one of these people who's trying to stop the electrification of everything to stop the phase out of natural gas that the state has moved towards has has been going after cities that are saying when you build new housing, it's really not even that radical of a of a mandate, you know, and a lot of cities in the area are doing it. A lot of cities in the Bay Area are doing it where it's just says if you build new housing, everything has to be electric. Pretty standard and also mm-hmm. cost savings, you know, over time for people who live there. It's, it's a great idea. It's a perfect climate type, you know, action to take. So on March 16th. And I just want to say this is a this is a grassroots group of just like. Californians who want balanced energy solutions, right? There's yeah, no- just completely <laughs> innocent group of people who just really love natural gas. Like, of course, because that's you know, it's easy to love. Yeah. So he sent an e- he sent this email on March 16th, threatening to have a protest mm-hmm. that would, c- would take place. I don't know at the council chambers or something like that. And it says, if the city council intends to move forward with another reading on a gas ban, I can assure you there will be no social distancing in place. I strongly urge the city council to kick this can down the road to adhere to public health safety measures. Please don't force my hand in bussing in hundreds and hundreds of pissed off people potentially adding to this pandemic. So this was like before the reopen protest. This Mm -hmm. was before we even really understood like how scary it would be to have this many people in one place. You know, we hadn't even like locked down. And he's basically threatening terrorism. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) suicide bombing. That's what he is threatening. And this is, we should make very clear, this is SoCal Gas. This is your gas provider pays for this front group to threaten to kill people uh, uh, participating in this meeting and their own protesters. Yes. And not only that, this mayor, Heidi Harmon of San Luis Obispo, I don't know if you remember the story that came out maybe at the end of last year, beginning early this year. She has had a stalker. She has been harassed. Like she has been through... So much. And she's super badass and is just like, well, I'm not scared of this person, whatever. But at the same time, I just want to point out, like, these people are are getting to be this even more radical than they are normally radical because they are scared because Mm -hmm. this pandemic could really threaten natural gas because it's it's very easy for us to say as part of our um, recovery from this, we are going to just completely phase it out and we're going to phase out fossil fuels because it makes more sense as a state. And this week also, the story came out that was written by um, Sammy Roth. He has a new newsletter. You should subscribe to it. Boiling, boiling Point. Boiling Point, which is basically what this is about, this particular situation. But the, there was a really, really big report out this week from like Rocky Mountain Institute, Sierra Club, all these other groups, basically putting together... 20 years of data that proves how bad our gas stoves are Mm -hmm. for us inside our own houses. 
And they're basically emitting so much nitrous oxide and carbon monoxide that if they were even outside, they would not be safe enough under many cities restrictions for air pollution. Your gas stove is poisoning you and it is you're in your house more (laughs) over the next the past two months Mm -hmm. and we're going to be inside more and absolutely mitigating, you know, the getting this taken care of at, at a state level is one of the most important things we can do for asthma, all these other things that are we know are actually, you know, even more detrimental than normal for our health because they contribute to underlying conditions that would make you more susceptible to COVID-19. So I am, I hope, and I, it seems like they're going to take good, you know, strong action to kind of shut this down, but this is the moment. I think we need to really pay attention to what is actually happening here and how we can just stop this as a state and electrify everything. The gas stoves, I want to point out, I think we might have talked about on the show, Californians for Balanced Energy Solutions has already mobilized to stop that from happening by radicalizing communities of color around this issue yes. and saying yes. like traditional wok cooking, lots of Indian food depends on an open flame. And so they are using the language of progressivism to to fight off this this movement to electrify everything. And like, you know, I've done like some research on this, like there's some induction burn. It's different. It is a different kind of cooking, but there are induction burners that you can attach to a wok. Like there are ways to make this happen. But all the chefs are already moving towards induction. Like if you look at all these fancy kitchens and industrial kitchens, Mm -hmm. they're down with it because it saves them money and it saves them time. It's like, it's, it's good. Right. And I wonder if you were able to communicate to a chef at a Chinese restaurant, for example, like you might have to change the way you are, uh, you are cooking, but you will live potentially much longer by not yes. being exposed <laughs> to poison right. all day long. Oh, yeah. Or not even that. Someone who doesn't, who it's like a, you said, is an employee that's forced to work in the kitchen alongside, not even like a culinary person, but just like a dishwasher in the yep. same area. I mean, it's, it's unfair to, to subject people to this. Yes, things are changing. But it is, I mean, I, I don't. I, I, I think we'll probably see more of this, The going back to like the terrorism, the suicide bomber type uh, description. I think we're going to see a lot more of this. And it's kind of already out there with the reopen people. And that is going to be really scary as far as what we're threatening people with like human bodies now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Vi- viral. <laughs> viral. Uh, I mean, uh, that's like a, bombings, the yeah. letter is like a Professor Moriarty level. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Please, please don't make me kill this bus full of people. Uh, Sign up for this bus tour of San Luis Obispo. It's going to be wonderful. Jump on the bus. Alyssa, can you also uh, talk about um, this? Uh, I uh, I had not heard that this has happened, but uh, safe camping is something that had been talked about in Los Angeles for a oh, while. Yeah. But it is this happening is, now, apparently. This is so, again, one of those things that maybe we've been moved closer to due to the pandemic, but it's something that should have been happening all along. Matt Tinoco went to the VA headquarters, which is in Westwood, which they've been talking about doing all sorts of interventions there and building housing and all these different things to help house vets. And they're just, what they what they saw was so many people coming and asking for help during the pandemic when it started, that they just let, it, let people start to camp there uh, in the parking lot. And you look at the photos, I think Matt took the photos and, and went there and, and talked to a lot of these people. And People just have their tents set up in this nice parking lot. It's all seems great and safe and they have bathrooms and access to all sorts of things that they need. People seem very happy to be there. It's about 30 people right now, but there's room for lots more. It's a huge (laughs) parking lot. Huge. Huge. And this again, you know, just like the hotel thing we've talked about before, which is still, I don't even think they have 2000 people in hotel rooms at the time that we're recording Mm -hmm. this. This is something that we could do so easily and so fast, not just putting safe parking on like every city owned lot. I mean, we, we could have done that forever. We, we could still do that now. But also think about all the like downtown parking lots that nobody's driving to during the day. Um, this is, again, that like 90 day window that we're talking about for the hotels, like put people in hotels for 90 days, figure out what they need, bring them, you know, get get every type of medical or mental health or whatever expert to, to help them and then figure out what we what we can do going forward. This you could do the same thing with not with safe parking if people have a vehicle, but also this like city sanctioned camping facility. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if a lot of these people are going to be returning back to work at some of these downtown towers. Maybe, you know, we'll have like par- entire parking structures that people could like, <laughs> you know, at least have yep. a shelter over their head if they wanted to stay there. So, it really got me thinking about a lot of solutions. And again, this has been done a lot in the a lot in the Bay Area, these like city managed camping sites, uh, and I think they said in Ontario there was a very uh, successful one as as well down here. 
But this is something, it's a no-brainer and it's going to be a lot cheaper than say standing up rec center type shelters for people who might already have their own tent. It's it's Mm -hmm. not ideal, of course. It's not what we want to do. Uh, Yes, and they're outside. They're in, you know, open air. They have their tent six feet away from each other. So yeah, I I would like to see more of it. I guarantee the testing facility at the Dodger Stadium parking lot is not taking up that whole space. No, the rental cars are there. Hey, sorry, we have to have homes for the rental cars. Oh, I didn't know that the rental cars. The parking lot is filled with rental cars because nobody's renting cars. So we gave the cars a home. Wow. Someone should write that story. Scott. CA 25, California's 25th Congressional District, made national news once again this week. Can you quickly sum up what happened there? It's a very newsy district. So Tuesday, we have a a special election here. This is in California's 25th, the the election that is following the resignation of Katie Hill, a former freshman representative who was, of course, in freshman representative emeritus. That's yeah, exactly. Uh, who, who was uh, who resigned following um, a coordinated attack campaign against her and allegations of sexual improprieties in her office. So the follow up race, the follow up to the primary of just two months ago, pits pits Christy Smith, who is a current state senator, against Mike Garcia, who is a Raytheon exec and big time Trump guy. This is a district that before it was flipped by Katie Hill was represented by Steve Knight. It was a Republican seat for a while, part of the big Democratic pickups during the during the previous election cycle in 2018. Steve Knight so, who washed out in the primary, I want to point out. He ran again. Yeah, he ran again for this seat and, and didn't get it. So Garcia has the the Trump, the Trump endorsement in this race. Christy Smith, of course, has uh, a number of notable Democratic endorsements. What what made news, as you were alluding to this week, Hayes, was that although vote by mail has been in place for this race, this has been something that it has for a while now been said, everybody who votes in this is going to have the opportunity to vote remotely. Gavin Newsom said, following some requests by people within the district, including by Rex Paris, who we've talked about, the Republican mayor of Lancaster. Gavin Newsom said that he was adding in a an in-person voting place for this election on Tuesday in order to support turnout for people who might otherwise be less likely to, to show up and vote. Of course, this would still involve social distancing, wearing masks, masks, things like this. And it is not anticipated that everyone will or should go to this voting place. I don't think that we'll see anything like what happened in Wisconsin mm-hmm. uh, a few weeks ago. But there but, wasn't a polling place in all of Lancaster, which is probably like what the second biggest city in the congressional district. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. So the, the concern was that the the reductions in, in in-person polling would unfairly discriminate against the 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 black and Latino populations of of the Antelope Valley there. So kind of like not even a big deal. This is this is one of a few, I think one of two maybe special elections that are occurring across the country this upcoming week. So it's getting a lot of attention anyway, mm-hmm. all the more so because national outlets have been reporting on this from a perspective of Democrats could lose a congressional seat in California for the first time in decades, not really not really accounting for the fact that this was a Democratic seat for all of, what, 11 months? Yeah. So who knows? I, I still don't even necessarily think that it's a, a given that Mike Garcia will flip this seat, but it is getting a lot of attention. And that attention trickled to Donald Trump himself, who took the opportunity to go on Twitter and, and accuse Gavin Newsom of trying to rig the election because Garcia is, in his words, winning by so much. They haven't, of course counted any ballots yet. So that's kind of a spurious claim, especially coming from somebody who has already said that he doesn't think that voting by mail is valid at all. Oh yeah, that was another classic. You would think that he would be a little bit pleased that Newsom was increasing voting in person, but he's (laughs) not. Donald Trump's hypocrisy exposed (laughs) on local news podcasts. LA LA podcast gets their man. Yeah. (laughs) But did he post... That these votes should not be allowed to count? Yes. That seems notable. 
Yeah, that um, seems like a, that's somewhat evidence of like how much we've been inured to everything that he explicitly said that certain people's votes should not be counted. I, I in mean, of he doesn't. Election. He does not want black votes to count in in Lancaster. He doesn't want them to count throughout the South. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't want black people voting. This, this is this is who he is. And and yes, he did say that. Closing segment idea that I have new segment. There's a little list. People love lists, these listicles, uh, where we each do rapid fire lightning round to answer uh, one question that's in uh, list form. I have a really bad name for the segment. Do you want to hear the worst The worst name? Yes. Spindler's List. That's wow. terrible. That's, yeah. <laughs> Named after that's city council gadfly uh, Wayne Spindler. We will not be naming the segment that. <laughs> it is by far the worst. You cannot come with a worse name than that. Oh, that's fantastic. But what about a million-dollar listing? That's good. I support that one. I used to watch that show. It was a Bravo show set in Los Angeles about um, big real estate. Here's here's the question for this week, and we each give one answer. Which restaurant that has closed recently permanently over the course of this pandemic will you miss the most? Alyssa. Well... I really wanted to go to the Noriega Hotel in Bakersfield. Yeah. This is not an L.A. answer, but I just remembered Jonathan Gold talking about it on Evan Kleiman's show on KCRW, and she actually replayed it, I think, one or two weekends ago. And I love Basque food, and I love the idea that there was this Basque community yeah. in Bakersfield, and I had never been there, and they just said they were going to, they were planning on closing anyway, and they're just going to close. And I think that'll be the case for a lot of these places, but um, just sad I never went there. That sucked. That looked really fun. I, I, I had the exact same thought. That I wish I had gone there at some point. Any in LA that you enjoyed? Well, I mean, I'll be sad to see the end of Nate now since it's the place that you and I first met in person for the first time. That was my answer. And so that is, <laughs> that's what I will put down as well. Do you remember the actual date? I can tell yes, you the it date. Was the, yes, I know the date. What was it? It was March 17th. 20, I don't remember the date, but it was the it was day there was an earthquake. There was an earthquake that morning. Yeah, 2014. There was an earthquake that morning in Westwood. The Shamrock, Shamrock Shake. Shamrock Shake. Oh, God. Scott, Memories. I will miss uh, Nate Niles. All right, Nate now Niles, I'm sad. Now I'm right? sad. Nate Niles was really overpriced, but uh, like everyone working there was so wonderful. We talked about it on BJ Novak's episode of, yep. of the of the 10. Of the 10. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I would always get the smoked whitefish and eggs uh, scramble with uh, a bialy and a tomato slice. Irving Azoff owns it, I guess, now, so it could still open up somewhere. I think it but... will. I don't think that one is actually going to be for gone, gone for long. So I, I will say that a lot of these closures have been you know, really sad. And that's, I've been watching the outpouring of, of grief about a lot of places. Swingers, it's kind of weird that mm. Swingers is, is out of business. That yeah. just seems like strange. For for me, as I was like looking through the list of, of places, I, I kind of just felt like, I had to say something about soup plantation, which yeah. is not even like a place that I went very much during the course of my adult life. But people uh, love it. People, like, love people it. really love it. Well, despite the name, despite I, I just the wanted to say <laughs> from a perspective of when I when I was a kid, I would occasionally go there with my grandparents. My grandmother in particular loved soup plantation. It was I don't know. She, she just loved that place. And so I just I have memories of being there with my family and and it's just kind of weird like just to have a place like that sort of disappear and and it it has me thinking more about the kind of places the kind of chains that are going to survive this and and I don't know it's it's still not something that I am fully making sense of at this point in time but but yeah soup plantation i have a a lot of good memories of of just being with family there and it's weird that it's gone i like salad bars so i'm really sad to see the end of salad bars i think that that's like one of my Mm -hmm. favorite dining things if soup Uh, plantation is going is sizzler going yeah like all those places have to take out their salad but also like i don't know like even at other or like a a wedding or something Mm -hmm. can you have buffet anymore and it's like family style dining done you know we have all these small shared small plates thing it's all gonna be pretty different right Mm -hmm. soup plantation uh, just another thing to point out like guess how many soup plantation locations there were 
Was it a local chain? Is it only it a, in LA? It was a local chain, but it did. I mean, I, I, it's headquartered in San Diego, so it's like Southern California. Uh, 150. Pretty close. 30? 97. Oh. But 97 locations across Southern California? Yeah. That's blight. That's a lot. Like, like that opening up that much retail space, that's just one chain. Like, yeah. that's potentially an issue yeah. in the commercial real estate market that is hopefully soon about to be, like, taxed out the ass. Yep. Thank you for listening to LA Podcast. Sign up for our Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash LA Podcast. Uh, we have this week an episode of The Ten coming out with Alex Cohen from uh, formerly KPCC, now Inside the Issues, local television. We also have uh, our first episode of 30 Mile Zone, where we talk about every single movie that has ever been made about Los Angeles, where we will be talking about speed. We recorded already. It was really fun. It is coming out this week. Uh, so sign up for our Patreon so you can listen to that. Thank you to Brian Holmes for producing the show. Thank you to my co-hosts. We will see you next week. Bye. Hey!